What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It's brand new Season 2. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and typically makes a reference to a song lyric, which I'm not doing today, and I'll explain why in a second. But I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, we're going to be looking into a very special listener request. Yeah, Camillo wrote in and said, Hello guys, I'm a long-time listener since Tech Stuff in 2008. Aww. That's going all the way back to the very beginning of Tech Stuff, back yeah. when we were doing 15-minute long episodes. I love all of How Stuff Works podcasts, and to keep this email short, I recently saw news of a head transplant that is expected to be performed in a couple of months. I can't recall a podcast specifically about head transplants. Not off the top of my head. Wink, wink. This sounds like a spooky subject, but very interesting. Keep up amazing tech and futuristic podcasts. I wouldn't know what to do without you guys at work. Oh, that's so sweet. So Camilla's referring to a news item about a proposed head transplant that would not be taking place in a couple of months unless you guys are listening to this in 2017, because that is when it would the proposed surgery would actually take place. Uh, right. And the technology necessary for this feat is not quite so far along as the popular me- media has perhaps made it sound. Yeah. Uh, the, the story, okay, is this. Back in July of 2013, one Dr. Sergio Canavero of the Turin Advanced Neuromodulation Group, or TANG, in Italy, announced his project to make head transplants possible. Uh, the project is called Heaven Gemini, Man. which is an acronym for something I do not know what. <laughs> Sounds like a like a robot in a video game. I know, right? Oh, we'll get mm. there. Yeah, we'll get Don't there later. Jump ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so this February in 2015, he announced that the project's uh, coming along well and that he thinks he'll be ready to conduct a head transplant surgery within the next two years. Yeah. Then it started making more headlines because in April of 2015, he got a volunteer with a medical necessity, one Valery Spiridonov. Uh, now, Spiridonov has type 1 spinal muscular atrophy, a.k.a. Wardning-Hoffman disease. Uh, Canavero has also been contacted, by the way, by uh, transgender people, but the procedure is so risky that, you know, e- even he would not want to try it 
you know, with a healthy body, even if that healthy body is is not the one that you want. Right. So in other words, he would want only to perform the surgery for someone who is already at risk of dying or or whose quality of life is such that it would be considered a worthwhile risk. Uh, right. And along those lines, let's take a second to talk about uh, Wording Hoffman. Sure. Uh, this is an inherited trait. The trait is an autosomal recessive trait. And it's a disease that's caused by disruptions or mutations in the SMN1 or survival motor neuron 1 gene, which is located on chromosome 5. And it's also known as infantile spinal muscular atrophy and characterized by the degeneration of nerve cells within the lower brainstem and certain motor neurons in the spinal cord. Now, this leads to muscle weakness, generally beginning in the extremities and eventually leading to other areas, including muscles involved in chewing, swallowing and breathing. Uh, and tragically, a large percentage of infants who develop this pass away before reaching the age of two. Oh, wow. So you can see why somebody suffering from this condition might be a candidate for something like a head transplant if that were possible. Yeah, and Spiridonov himself has said, you know, he has lived beyond what most people had expected he mm-hmm. would be able to, to, you know, he, they, most people thought he would have passed away by now. Uh, most of the doctors he had uh, been consulting throughout his entire life. And so his, his uh, position on the matter is that he he is experiencing a difficult life. He's not expected to have a very long lifespan. And so for him, this is a risk that's worth taking. Sure, sure. And, you know, if if, if these headlines about the possibility of a head transplant have sounded kind of incredible to you, you're not the only one. The, the medical community has, has kind of been in agreement about that. Yeah, uh, and, that's being kind. Yeah, and, and that's partially because uh, successful organ transplants have really only been happening for the past 50 years or so. So before we go into the specifics about this head transplant uh, surgery and, and the controversy surrounding it, I want to take a look at the history of the medical technology surrounding transplantation. Sure. I actually didn't know that this was such a recent phenomenon. I I imagine it'd be one of those things that had been done in a dirty and unpleasant way for hundreds of years. Well, there were certainly lots of uh, early attempts that almost always resulted in the immediate death of the patient. If not that, then it resulted in the eventual death of the patient. Uh, Right. We've we've actually only had the technology or, or rather the, the methods to perform vascular anastomoses uh, that, that's joining up to blood vessels since the very beginning of the 20th century. And it wasn't until then that people could really start to attempt real organ transplants. I'm, I'm sure that there were a few unfortunate cases earlier than that where people kind of like stuck an organ in a thing and went, oh, nope, that's not working. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, there. But, well, I know there are a lot of cases in like mythology and you don't know to what extent that might have been based on some horrific ancient experiment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so one of the researchers who was working on on the methodology of joining blood vessels together began attempting organ transplants in 1906. Uh, he he was trying to put uh, goat or, or pig kidneys into human patients who were experiencing renal failure, which, to be fair, at that time was was a, a mortal organ failure. Mm-hmm. There was no coming back from that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it obviously did not work out. Uh, but it did get the field started. In the meanwhile, another technology was in kind of co-development in the medical community, and that's uh, artificial respiration and circulation. And by 1953, the, the heart-lung machine, or, or the pump as we know it today, had been created. So it's something that can artificially circulate a patient's blood and, and oxygen, during a surgery. It was it was used for the first successful open heart surgery in 1953. And the next year, in 1954, we get the very first successful human organ transplant, which was a kidney transplant. The doctor uh, ended up transplanting a kidney from one identical twin to another identical twin. And the benefit of that is there was no risk of uh, organ rejection. In fact, that's the only case... Uh, apart from using someone's own tissue where you don't have to worry about the the uh, rejection of tissue that you would in other transplant surgeries. Oh, right, right. And I'm not sure whether 
people knew at that specific time that that was why it was successful. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure either. Because there was a lot of unsuccessful transplants after that. Right. There were quite a few. So Dr. Joseph Murray was the one who performed the procedure and Mm -hmm. was eventually awarded the Nobel Prize for this work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Darn skippy. Yeah. And the recipient of the kidney lived for eight years after the transplant surgery. So that was considered a success. Yeah. It led to other surgeries that were not as successful. Yeah. If you look at the history of transplantation uh, other than this, which the the person lived for eight years afterwards, very often you see like, well, they lived for seven days afterwards or 20 days. And that has a lot to do with the rejection of tissue that I was talking about. And then even after we started to develop drugs to help prevent that, the drugs themselves could lead to complications that could lead to fatalities. Mm -hmm. So – it all depends upon uh, the the technology and the drugs and the processes at the time. So 1954 is the first organ transplant. We move to 1963 and we get the first lung transplant surgery performed by Dr. James Hardy. The recipient was actually a patient who was serving a life sentence in prison. Uh, the patient had lung cancer, which had resulted in a collapsed lung and recurrent pneumonia. So mm-hmm. Dr. Hardy performs the lung transplant. It's considered to be a success. The patient begins breathing almost immediately uh, without any problems. However, the patient subsequently suffered progressive kidney failure and died 18 days after the transplant. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so... The autopsy didn't show any signs of organ rejection, but other procedures that followed in the the next few decades, and, and there weren't a whole lot. It wasn't like there were hundreds, mm-hmm. but you know, the next several decades saw similar problems with patients dying within a few months of the procedure. And the first truly successful lung transplant, one where the patient would go on to live a a normal lifestyle after the procedure was done, that didn't happen till 1983. So two decades after the first one was when you had the first truly successful one. Um, and that just kind of tells you that, you know, this is really complicated stuff. Uh, the first heart transplant took place in 1967. Uh, that was performed by Dr. Christian Barnard. And the patient passed away 18 days after the procedure due to pneumonia. And this is where we see that the the anti-rejection drugs, those are immunosuppressive drugs. Right, because when you get somebody else's organ implanted in you, unless it's just the right one, like from your twin or something, mm-hmm. typically your immune system regards that organ as something that shouldn't be in there right, and, and goes it, to work attacking it. Exactly. So your own immune system is attacking your new organ, and that is obviously going to be a a, a true complication. So that's why these immunosuppressive drugs have been administered in order to reduce that. But that also opens up the doorway to other potential uh, you know, pathogens, other yeah. potential illnesses. You, uh, you need your immune system. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty good to have around. Um, but advances started being made to those drugs in the 1970s, right? Yes, that's uh, when the uh, chemists began to the chemists. That's when <laughs> chemists in general began developing uh, the anti-rejection drug uh, cyclosporine, which worked much better than earlier anti-rejection drugs. Uh, it wouldn't be until 1983 that the FDA would give it clearance to be used in transplant surgeries. And and yeah, like we were just saying a second ago, uh, the, these immunosuppressant drugs, well, I mean, in, in general, they interfere with either the creation or the activities of your, your body's T cells, which are these specific types of white blood cells that, that remember and attack stuff that they identify as dangerous in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this drug, cyclosporine, is particularly useful because it uh, it the the way in which it messes with your your T cells is a little bit gentler uh, gotcha. than than yeah. some of the the previous drugs which were a little bit more of a nuke it from orbit kind of option it's the only um, way to be sure uh, right uh and yeah so so being able to to mediate T cells response uh means that you can prevent them from attacking stuff that you want in your body like a new heart or like your joints this drug is also used in uh, rheumatoid arthritis care for example mm. uh. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we when we talk about our immune systems, they are incredibly important, but boy, they can cause some big problems right when you you least need those big problems. Yeah. Th- things like allergies, I'm severe allergy mad about attacks. Allergies. Yeah, those are nothing not... is wrong with cats, dumb body. Yeah, I want to hug the cats. Yeah, no, 
we could have a whole discussion about my allergies and how I'm not very pleased with them. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, immune systems, clearly we'd be much worse off without them. But we do have to f- take them into account with something as traumatic mm-hmm. as a transplant surgery. Uh, now, when we move on with some more kind of cool updates to transplant technology, we start looking at uh, synthetic and regenerative medicine approaches, which are really awesome. This is the idea where we don't necessarily have to rely upon a donor to get the organ that we need in order to perform the transplant. And the earliest examples of this are actually, uh, in skin grafting products. So not like a, not like a, a an internal organ, but rather an uh, external organ. Yeah. So the first one would be, uh, Aplograph, which was a skin grafting product that the FDA approved in 1998. And in 2001, the FDA approved Dermagraft, another, uh, kind of skin graft product. So, this would allow doctors to grow the skin externally, uh, you know, not attached to the patient and then mm-hmm. graft it onto the patient without having to remove uh, a patch of skin from one part of the body and transplant it to another part of the body. Uh, right. It's really useful for stuff like like el- ulcers uh, yeah. that are not healing under their own power. And these things are all basically fake skin that contain real human cells. And and by fake skin, it might be a, a collagen that's been composed of 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 cow cells or something like that. But but at any rate, it's it's a biostructure that uh, that you can put on a patient and it will grow into the patient's body and attach to the patient's own skin. So that is so gross and and, <laughs> and amazing at yep. the same time. So I start thinking about um the Dark Man series, huh. okay. mm. one of those. So you don't go out in the sun because otherwise it'll just end up bubbling off of you. Uh, it's only in Dark Man, though, not this stuff. Uh, right. Was so, Dark Man the one that had a certain set of skills? <laughs> well, he he later <laughs> proved to have a certain set of skills. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Many things were taken from Dark Man. In 2008, a patient received an airway transplant that was a regenerated airway. So the airway scaffold came from a donor. Uh, that part was remained like a, a traditional transplant, mm-hmm. but the the doctors had removed the donor's cells from the scaffold, the the various cells that were attached to the scaffolding. So it's just kind of a a raw uh, structure at that point. Mm-hmm. They added uh, cartilage stuff. Yeah, yeah. They added uh, bone marrow cells from the patient, and the bone marrow cells are essentially kind of like stem cells, a subset of stem cells, if you think of it that way. They used the bone marrow, which ended up creating the the tissue for the airway, and then they transplanted that into the patient, and this helped reduce the possibility of an organ rejection because it was the patient's own tissue uh, in the airway. Right, right. The thing about bone marrow is that all of your T-cells are grown there. Mm -hmm. So if you have some some bone marrow cells creating uh, T-cells, then... Yeah, it's already saying, hey, uh, we're all on the same team, yes. essentially. Uh, then in 2010, we saw the first full face transplant, uh, you know, bo- bones and all, like like cheekbones, wow. jaw, nose, teeth, all the muscles and eyelids and all of that stuff. Uh, and it's so hard to not make a face off reference here. But, man, that movie is really terrible. And this surgery is really incredible. Yeah. Uh, and this was basically made possible. I mean, because we had all of the all of the elements of that, all of the bone grafting and and uh and muscle connection and all of that stuff but uh but anti-rejection medication was really what allowed the surgery to be a success um the the patient went through two phases of, of rejection and was saved successfully both times wow uh, in 2011, that's when a patient received the first regenerated airway transplant that used a synthetic scaffold rather than one from a donor. So in this case, there was no need for any kind of donation. They were able to build it from the ground up essentially. And in 2013, the first successful regenerated trachea transplant takes place, as well as a successful regenerated trachea with synthetic scaffold transplant in a child. Man. So now we're getting to that point where uh, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but the idea of being able to build these synthetic structures and then incorporate the patient's uh, tissue into those synthetic structures to create new versions of the patient's own organs. Mm-hmm. That's where we're headed, but we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, 
As for head transplants, to get back to the topic at hand, uh, well, we've seen some experiments, some pretty crazy mad science style experiments involving. Oh, yeah. Well, we can certainly recall those Russian experiments with yeah. like, uh, dogs <clears throat> taking the head off of a dog and putting it on another dog. Yeah. Or, well, I think they were also just experimenting with if they could keep a dog's a head, head living, alive. yeah, right, not right. attached to the dog body. So yeah. they attached it to like a circulatory. Uh, machine. Yeah. 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 And, and you can see videos of this if you believe that no special effects were involved in creating them at the time. Uh, they would like do incredibly disturbing things like pound a hammer on the table where the severed dog's head was and the dog's head would seem to sort of react. Would kind of react to it. Yeah. yeah. I, um, uh, yeah, we talked about that in our episode about Frankenstein. Yes, Is we that did. Correct? Yeah. We did. I cannot. I cannot ever watch those again. Yeah. Once was enough. Um, it was truly disturbing. Yeah. yeah. But in the 1950s and 60s and even into the 70s, there were some experiments largely in Russia, but in other places as well, with uh, head transplants with dogs and monkeys. Um, there was one monkey head transplant that was successful for eight days. The monkey was able to continue eating and breathing, but had was essentially paralyzed from the neck down uh. and died uh, eight days after tissue rejection. Mm-hmm. But it mm. did kind of work. The The spinal cord never fused back. That was one of the things we'll talk uh, about, too. Well, but that seems like a pretty major issue. A huge issue, obviously. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, but anyway, these these were these were um, experiments, but none of them were like, uh, you know, a ground the foundation for further work. Right. Uh, right. No one looked at them and said. You know, this is a great plan. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I think we should look at where the science of transplantation rests today. Like, what are we good at doing and what are the things that uh, that are still presenting problems for us? Uh, well, guys, we are so good at cutting. <laughs> we are terrific at cutting stuff, like seriously. And th- this is important because, uh, you know... As you have perhaps seen in your own kitchen, if your knives are getting a little bit dull, uh, a, a less than sharp edge will, will damage the tissue that you're cutting and, and invite a, an immune response, which is what you do not want. Right. Cutting with a dull knife tends to sort of do some ripping and crushing as right. it cuts. Exactly. Um, so with, it, with advances in the material science necessary to create very sharp blades and with the advent of laser systems that can be used in surgery, we are able to keep both the, the organs and the patients much healthier. Mm. Uh, we've also developed ways of keeping organs viable uh, while waiting for to, to perform transplant surgery. Typically, this involves bathing the organs in a cold salt water solution or saline. Uh, and it will usually let the organs last several hours depending upon the organs. So for kidneys, it could be 48 hours. For livers, it's about 24 hours. For a heart, only 5 to 10 hours. So it's very dependent upon the type of organ. Obviously, with something like a person's head, you've got a lot more to consider, you know, mm-hmm. keeping the brain oh, yeah. oxygenated and everything. So mm-hmm. uh, but the the whole idea here is that by lowering the temperature, you lower the amount of energy the cells need to exert in order to survive. And that prolongs their viability so that you can get them to where they need to be and the, the surgery can be performed. But it is a matter of hours, right? This isn't something mm-hmm. where you can just, you know, you've got a freezer full of organs and you can just go and pull one out whenever you need it. It's right. it's one of the things that makes this such a delicate and difficult um, field of medicine. Here's another thing that uh, I think is fascinating, which is the ability to keep a patient alive while you're sort of like moving around or removing or inserting organs that we normally think of as absolutely critical to survival. Oh, yeah. Like, how do you actually do a heart transplant? Well, uh, you hook someone up to one of those uh, artificial heart lung machines yeah. and kind of let it go. And you, you also uh, one of the advances that we've seen since the 1950s was uh, the capacity to do that with artificially cooled blood, mm-hmm. which helps the, the rest of the patient's body. Oh, I'm sorry. Literally chill out. Uh, <laughs> it, it just kind of it, it preserves the rest of the organs while the transplant is going on. Yeah, we yeah. talked a little bit about that when we were talking about the possibility of suspended animation in a previous episode, how right. this is something that is therapeutic being therapeutic hypothermia. Right. I don't know if this would technically 
qualify as that, but at least it's a similar principle, right. keeping temperatures low to prevent tissue degeneration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, and even in that episode, if you recall, it was really all about keeping a patient uh, alive in order to address a medical issue immediately, as opposed to perpetually keeping that patient alive until you can thaw them out like a hundred years from now. That's not what, that's not where the technology is right now. Yeah. Um, then of course we've got the immunosuppressive drugs. Yeah. The, the anti-rejection drugs we're talking about. Right. So the early ones were pretty, pretty damaging to a person. Even if they were working as they were intended, they could cause other consequences, for well, example. Because sure. in general, killing stuff in your body, like like we all know from example for, for chemotherapy, yeah. kills stuff in your body. Yeah, stuff, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. right? So the newer drugs have lower toxicity with fewer side effects, like side effects like uh, raising your blood pressure or your cholesterol or even uh, uh, <laughs> giving you diabetes. That could be one of the side effects of these older immunosuppressive drugs and still a risk with the current ones. Um, even with those advances, there are a lot of, of things you have to take into consideration. They can be toxic, toxic to kidneys. Uh, they can cause, they may cause cancer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the thing about them is that most patients who have to start taking them due to a transplant have to take them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So one of the things that people are really looking into are ways of performing surgeries that would not require immunosuppressive drugs. So in other words, these regenerative uh, medical approaches where you're using the tissue from the patient, him or herself, then you don't need to worry about using the immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their lives because they're getting a transplant of their own tissue. Right, right. Um, obviously, that would be a huge benefit. All right. Well, let's bring it back to the discussion of the head transplant because that's what everybody's got to know. Can I get my head put on a more attractive body? <laughs> or maybe or, like a dinosaur body. Right. Well, so now we're okay. starting to sound like a Tales from the Crypt I'm sorry. No, th- that was in bad taste. I shouldn't make light of it, actually. We, you know, can, yeah, yeah. can you, oh, if no, you have absolutely. a, right, a right. disease we're, we're affecting sorry. your body, mm-hmm. yeah. can you can you actually get a head transplant? So let, let's look at Canavero's proposal. It's, uh, pretty, it's pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, he, he's estimating that it will require the coordinated efforts of 100 surgeons working for a grand total of 36 hours. Uh, although the surgery itself would be very short. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. So you don't sure. want your head disconnected for 36 hours. No, no that would be bad. Um, because for one thing, a head can't remain viable on its own. Yeah. Uh, it would have to be kept alive throughout the procedure, which would be pretty tricky. Yeah, you you can't. You can't put it in a, a saline solution like you could with a <laughs> liver or a heart. Uh, um, right. You would have to have, you know, some form of circulation going with that head the entire time. Plus, the head is home to lots of stuff. Like, it's not an organ like a heart, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about you have your eyes, you have your nose, your um, your ears, you've got skin, you've got glands that are very important, um, the all located in that area. And of course, you have the brain. So if you decapitate a head, which obviously would be one of the steps of this surgery, mm-hmm. you immediately have a decrease in blood pressure in the head. No big surprise there. There's no way of pumping blood continuously there. But that also means that you have a uh, you start to deprive the brain of oxygen. Uh, so then the patient would go into a coma, which would be shortly followed by death. Right. You'd start to have that cell death throughout the brain, which is exactly what you don't want to happen because we generally consider that irreversible. Right. It causes damage to the brain that's going to kill you. So uh, Canavero has based the the uh, idea that it needs to – the procedure of actually hooking up the head from the patient to the donor body would need to happen in less than one hour uh, based upon previous surgeries, including the one I was uh, referring to earlier about the the monkey head that mm-hmm. had been transplanted and lived for eight days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was all based on those earlier experiments. And so the actual point where you uh, separate the patient's head from the patient's body and then attach it to the donor body would have to take less than an hour uh, out of that full 36 hours we were talking about previously. Um, you would have to have that connection there so that the the brain could remain uh, viable. Uh, however, when you're actually doing the the – the transplant, both bodies, the patient and the donor body, would have to be in cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. 
and then you could start the heart of the donor body afterward once the 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 head has been attached but uh until then they would both be in cardiac arrest and then assuming that the surgery is in fact a success any signs of rejection would have to be handled immediately and the head is home to so many systems like the eyes and the brain and all of this that the risks of rejection would be much greater than if it were a single organ. You have a lot of potential points of failure, in other words. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, d- During this time after the surgery, the, the patient would have to be kept unconscious, uh, you know, not just immediately, but for like three to four weeks in order to uh, allow the spinal cord to grow new connections, right. according to Cotavaro. And And medically induced comas come with other risks on top of the ones we've already talked about including things like blood clots, infection, and reduced brain activity. Mm -hmm. So that would be another thing to keep your eye on, assuming that the surgery itself had gone well. Oh, sure. Uh, Although, as we were mentioning earlier, that that spinal cord severance might be the the real problem in getting the surgery to be effective because, you know, muscles and blood vessels can be cut and then sutured back together uh, or, or not sutured, but reattached Mm -hmm. in the zany medical ways that they do. I do not actually understand the process, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, But spinal cord severing and and fusion would have to be so sharp and clean. And uh, Canavaro says that the chemicals, he mentioned uh, polyethylene glycol and chitosan. It's kind of essentially like a a biologically uh, uh, created glue. Mm-hmm. Is what these tend to be. So. Uh, sure, he, he claims that those could encourage fusion. Um, electrodes would be implanted, and and while the patient was kept unconscious after the surgery, the the team would be applying electrical stimulation via the electrodes in order to help boost new nerve connections. Mm. So, in, in other words, it, it's it's not enough to have everything plugged in properly. You also have to have these signals passing through in order for the body to recognize that there are actual impulses passing along the spinal uh, col- right, column. Right, in order to recognize, hey, we're brain tissue, you're brain tissue, let's make brain happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and it's not just in our sort of non-expert point of view that this sounds like a very, very ambitious proposal. Well, especially when you take into account what Canavero has said, that assuming that everything goes well, what the patient will be capable of doing after the surgery. Uh, yeah, I mean, so they'd be down for about a month uh, while their spinal cord is reconnected. Uh, but then he claims that a patient would be able to walk within a year. After the surgery. Yeah, that's I mean, so if if you think that we are a little skeptical, you're right, because there are just so many different hurdles to overcome in order for this to even remotely work. Uh, but, yeah, we're not the only ones to express skepticism. The The medical community at large has expressed everything from uh cautious skepticism to outright disbelief. Mm-hmm. Like there aren't a whole lot of people coming out and saying, yeah, I think this is going to work. In fact, most of the reports I've read have said uh that they were they were very skeptical. Some of them even went further to suggest that Canavero's idea is crazy. Like that's <laughs> I've seen that word being that used. That word being lobbied about. Yeah. yeah. Uh and and it could in fact be crazy for a reason. Yeah. So this was something I came across while I was researching the story. And let's just preface it by saying that this is a kind of like sort of conspiratorial allegation. But yeah, it this this falls this can fall under the category of conspiracy theory. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that that seems to support it, but it's circumstantial evidence, right? Yes. And why we're dancing around this is because there are now allegations that perhaps the the timing of these announcements has coincided with the promotion of a certain video game. That uh, video game being Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. In other words, that this entire thing about head transplantation is a marketing stunt. Yeah. Uh, now, there, now, there's some who say that Canavero seems uh, actually uh, sincere about head transplants, but perhaps the timing of this particular discussion uh, is, in fact, more of a a collaboration and that be a right right like right in other words saying like this is something i want to do sometime in the future but i'm going to say i'm going to do it now because now it's 
being it's part of this other grander stunt of uh, promoting a video game. So so what's the deal with the promotion? All right. So here here's the circumstantial evidence that has come about. Um, the the game Metal Gear Solid Five has uh, there's been images leaked of uh, not even leaked I mean promoted of uh, there's a character in the game that is a doctor who looks I I wrote eerily similar to Canavero, but if you look at the pictures they look like it's, it looks like it's the same guy right like oh, yeah. Yeah. on casual glance you wouldn't even be able to tell we're looking at a pair of photos in our notes right now. The top photo in our notes is a picture of Canavero. The bottom photo is a picture of the character in the game. And the bottom photo looks like it's just another picture of Canavero. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a little frownier. certainly uncanny. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that. Then there are a couple of other pieces of, again, circumstantial evidence, not not – this, none of this is smoking gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, the patient of uh, uh, Valery uh, Spiridonov is also a CG artist and game development supervisor. So some have said that maybe that uh, Spiridonov is in on this as well, and it's not a, a sincere attempt at this surgery. Mm-hmm. Again, this is just an allegation. Uh, Canavero has published work about Phantom Pain in the past, and the subtitle of the game is The Phantom Pain. Right. Uh, there are several acronyms used by Canavero, you know, things like uh, Heaven that are also used in the Metal Gear Solid game. So there's some terminology that is seems to be shared between the publications written by Canavero and the stuff within the game. Which came first? Don't know. Uh, Hideo Kojima, who was uh, one of the creators of the game, tweeted back in 2010 that he had found an, quote, ally to help address a huge taboo. He had planned the game to have this enormous taboo incorporated in it and did not give any more details. So people looking at this now are retroactively looking back at all the tweets and stuff and saying, hmm, maybe Canavero is this ally, someone who would support an idea like a head transplant, which supposedly happens within the the course of Metal Gear Solid Five. So, uh, in fact, there are some promotional images of Metal Gear Solid Five which show this, this scientist character uh, – holding some form of device to a decapitated head on a platter. Um, it doesn't look like a scene of violence. It looks like a scene of mad science in that case. Hmm. Uh, at any rate, so that more circumstantial evidence. Uh, and Kojima is um, kind of a, well, certainly a, a well-known figure in the video game circles. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he recently made headlines when he when he left Konami, who he had been collaborating with for for a very long time. Yeah. Um, uh, his most recent project with Konami was Silent Hills, which is that uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, Norman Reedus, uh, Silent Hill, new Silent Hill game that, yeah. that was making so many waves a few months ago. Yeah, it just got canceled. And that has been very upsetting. I mean, you, you, the the big news from like a year ago was when uh, Konami released PT and didn't say what PT was for. Mm-hmm. And PT ended up being a playable trailer for Silent Hills. You didn't know that while you were playing it. It was only after you had completed the trailer, which, by the way, was incredibly creepy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It very was, effective. I, I watched a playthrough of it. And it was it's really good. very, yeah, very unsettling. So this was one of those things where, uh, you know, Kojima has been known for going through elaborate setups to promote video games in in non-traditional and and very media savvy ways. Well, I have to say if this is a promotional stunt for a video game, it is a bizarre one in very bad taste. Yeah, um, uh I mean there's certainly there've been plenty of of ways of marketing games that were not directly tied back to the games, at least not initially. Sure. Like like alternate reality games. There are quite mm-hmm. a few that started off that no one was even sure what it was trying to promote at the beginning. So it's possible that this was promotion. However, Canavero, for his part, denies involvement. Okay. And Kojima also denied that Canavero's likeness was used. Uh, so Canavero had come out and said – I didn't give permission for my likeness to be used. Uh, they shouldn't be using my my image without my permission. And Kojima said, oh, we weren't actually using him. It's just a, it's coincidence. a coincidence. 
it's a coincidence. If it's a coincidence, it's a phenomenal coincidence. Because uh, yeah, this whole thing is a phenomenal coincidence. If it's all a coincidence, yeah. I mean, and strange things happen in the universe. Right. Chaos theory. You yeah. Know, yeah. I, I I get it. Law but... law of truly large numbers uh-huh. says that even things that would seem impossible sometimes happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, is it's one of those where the circumstantial evidence is such. That if there's nothing there, it's really it. It almost seems more weird that there'd <laughs> right. be nothing there than that. Right. This is all about a promotion for a video game. Yeah. Uh, so we will see, I suppose, eventually how all of this shakes out and and whether whether it's a clever ruse or not. Uh, but at any rate, I, I'm glad that the headlines popped up for it because we got to do this research into transplantation. And, and all of the amazing research that's going into it. Yeah, well, whether or not we can transplant ahead, <laughs> we are going to be forging some new territory in transplantation soon. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we should talk about the future of medical transplantation. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. One thing that researchers are looking at doing is keeping organs alive longer. Uh, because as, as we said earlier, you know, the, the expiry date on organs from a donor is really short, a matter of hours or two days at most for kidneys. Right. In August of 2014, though, the FDA approved a device that uh, preserves one particular organ, the, the lungs, for long enough to determine whether they're a really good match for a transplant, uh, about four extra hours on top of the normal time. Lungs, by the way, are really particularly tricky. About 80% of donated lungs are deemed unfit for transplant. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and the, the creators of the machine, which is called the Ex Vivo Perfusion System, <laughs> um, they're hoping that eventually their their system will allow for the storage of lungs for up to two or three days. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I got to say, though, ex vivo perfusion system sounds like something I would see in a spa. <laughs> Just step into our ex vivo perfusion system and you will come out a new person. Uh, another thing that we're seeing advances in are the, going back to the the regenerative uh, medicine approach and the uh, the synthetic uh, uh, scaffolding for things like airways, mm-hmm. 3D printing and transplants. Um, so this is something that we've been talking about for a while in our 3D printing episodes. I think we've referred to it once or twice. Mm-hmm. But the idea of using uh, tissue as essentially ink and being able to print upon first designing the scaffolding, the structure of whatever organ you're making, and then printing the tissue directly onto that that scaffolding. Into so, it, yeah. Yeah, so that you have a a healthy organ to transplant, and it's made from the patient's own tissue. So then, cultured tissues. Yeah, yeah. you've mm-hmm. got you've got a nice uh, a nice heads up. You're able to to get to a point where you can make this transplant surgery without the worry of the organ being rejected, uh, the body reacting in a negative way. Uh, however, you know, that being said, it sounds like I'm making it sound way easier than it really is because depending upon the organ, some of these organs are incredibly complex. You know, you're talking about, you know, it's not just a mass of tissue, obviously. It's important. It has lots of different parts to it. Yeah. So to be able to, to synthetically create a working version of that ourselves from the ground up is, uh, depending on the organ, uh, easier said than done. So Actually, we, we are, for we, all of the organs, it's easier said than done. Yeah, we, we are not lumpy space people. We no, can't just yeah. If we could just like have a massive tissue that's generally liver shaped and you're fine, mm-hmm. it would be so much easier. But no, that's not the way it works. Uh, however, it is very promising, and we're seeing more and more um, uh, you know advances in that. In March of this year of 2015. A Russian company called 3D Bioprinting Solutions announced it had successfully printed a mouse thyroid using these bioprinting techniques. And they're planning on transplanting this printed organ into a mouse that suffers from hypothyroidism. Hmm. And uh, the results have not yet been published. They said that they will be presenting their results at a conference called the Second International Congress on Bioprinting, which will take place in Singapore in July. So in July, they will announce how this experiment went, whether it was a a success or not. Uh, And, you know, a thyroid is relatively simple, so it was a good thing to target for this kind of procedure. And also, it's important because thyroid cancer is a real thing. It can uh, it affects around 300,000 people or rather 300,000 people are diagnosed with it every year. 
So being able to print a thyroid on an as-needed basis could potentially save thousands of lives every year. Wow. So yeah. if, if this ends up being a success, it could be it could be the beginning of something truly transformational in medicine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other researchers are looking into entirely artificial organs. Mm-hmm. And and of course, we do have some systems right now that that will keep a patient alive until a real biological organ can be transplanted. But as our technology and also our, our understanding of human biology improve, we might end up with some some medical cyborgs. There are research labs working on artificial kidneys. Those are still in development. But with artificial hearts, which, you know, replace a whole a whole heart, like yeah. ventricles and valves and all. Uh, some artificial hearts have supported patients for up to four years before a transplant organ became available. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, we could do an entire episode about about artificial organs and the development of those, because that's a, also a fascinating story mm-hmm. uh, and, and an amazing achievement in technology to have been able to create something that is medically safe to implant in a person and can keep them alive until an actual organic uh uh, replacement is available. And that, yeah, I, I'm excited to see that continue with other organs besides uh, the heart and kidneys. Oh, absolutely. Uh, also on the immunosuppression front, there is a team out of Massachusetts General Hospital that's been conducting a clinical trial for bone marrow transplants in addition to organ transplants, kidney transplants specifically. So, uh, so, so the idea here is, uh, like, like we were saying with the, the scaffolding uh, the throat scaffolding issue in mm-hmm. some other patients. If you uh, if you give someone a kidney transplant and also destroy some of the patient's native bone marrow and give them a transplant of some of the donor's bone marrow. Oh, I see. So the so in other words, the patient's getting bone marrow and an organ from the same donor. Right. So that means that the bone marrow, which is generating these T cells, is already familiar with the tissue of, of the, the donated organ. organ. So you wind up with these uh, two bone marrow T cell creating systems working together to support the the patient's original tissue and the new organ. I see. So that would uh, that would at least hopefully cut down the incidence of organ rejection because the patient's own systems would be generating the same native T cells as the the tissue that was donated. Right, right. Uh, we're still waiting for the results of these trials. But as of 2008, four of the original five patients had gone for five years without having to take immunosuppressive drugs. That's pretty incredible. That's, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So obviously, I think the the ultimate future that we want to get to with organ transplantation is the ability to ha- have these regenerative techniques where you, you sort of regrow organs with your own stem cells. They're based on your own biology. That seems like the, the ideal solution all around. But sure. as you pointed out, that is a ways off. Yeah. And there are people who need organs today. Right. In the meantime, we have a a need that is not going to just sit on hold for the decade or so it'll take for us to get that that technology to maturity. Right. So in the meantime, I wanted to talk about something else I read about, which is a a more controversial sort of temporary solution in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And that would be open markets for organ donation. And by market, I mean the exchange of money. Money Right. You you don't mean a physical market. No. Like a farmer's market. That would would be a little (laughs) No, that would be very very unsafe. Uh, Would, however, fit right into Silent Hill's. Yes. Uh, but so, so of course, today you cannot purchase an organ for transplant. No. Well, in most countries you can't. Okay. And so, so, like, you could maybe go to Iran and mm. purchase a, a an organ for transplant. But in the United States and many other countries, you can choose to donate your organs at death. Or if you're a very nice person or you care about somebody very much, you can donate something like a kidney while you're still alive. Sure. Like you can continue living with just one kidney. Mm-hmm. Somebody else might have renal failure and they need a kidney mm-hmm. and you can give them one of yours. Um, but you can't sell it to them. Right. Legally, you're not supposed to sell your organs. But some people have argued that it would be a good idea to move to a general open market for organ donation where you could be paid a market-determined price – for example, a kidney. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are arguments for and against. Um, the most obvious and pressing argument for is that 
thousands of people die every year on the waiting list for kidneys. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a crazy shortage of organs of, of all kinds in the market. Yeah. So in the United States, uh, according to the National Kidney Foundation in 2013, 4,453 patients died while waiting on a kidney transplant. They're on the waiting list. They're, I, I assume they're probably on dialysis mm-hmm. uh, waiting to get a kidney, and they did not get one in time, and they, they died. From, oh, my goodness. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, on average, they say 12 people die every day waiting for a kidney. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, on top of that, there's simply the problem of waiting. So let's say you're waiting four years to get a kidney and you eventually get one. And that allows you to extend your, you know, your lifespan and, mm-hmm. and to go on living. But that time while you're waiting, you're having to undergo dialysis. It's just going to be a major blow to your quality of life and your ability to do things right. to live. And you don't recapture those four years. Yeah. And so in economic terms, this is a situation where demand has greatly outpaced supply. There is way more demand for kidneys than there are kidneys to go around. Mm-hmm. So some economists have proposed a very economic sounding solution. Uh, one example of people making this argument is in uh, January 2014, economists Gary Becker and Julio Elias uh, authored a piece in the Wall Street Journal where they recommended this path. It was called Cash for Kidneys, the Case for a Market for Organs. And they support compensation for live kidney donation and a model where family members can be compensated when uh, when they choose to give up the healthy organs of a dead relative. Uh, yeah. Right, because that can be one of the, the blocks placed in organ donation is when uh, e- even if a person has selected to be an organ donor, you need the acquiescence of their surviving relatives in order to go ahead with the organ donation. Right. So mm-hmm. somebody might, if you have a relative who's just passed away, they might have a healthy heart and somebody else needs that heart. But mm-hmm. you, you could but, say, but no, the, no, no. But the, yeah, yeah the, yeah, the understandably upset family members might not want that. Right. So even if it is your wish as an organ donor to have your organs donated, it's possible for uh, your next of kin to say, mm-hmm. no, I don't want that to happen. And the medical profession, you know, the medical professionals will back away. They mm-hmm. won't they won't continue. Yeah. And so this is understandably a very controversial proposal. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure where I stand on it. I can see the arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. On one hand, I mean, I I would probably, if I were myself someone who needed a kidney, I I would think like, well, yeah, if there's some way I could, you know. If you can motivate people to do more donations, then yes, please do it any any way you can, of course. Yeah, but then, of course, there are arguments against it. Uh, The the economists in this piece who were were for it, they did try to offer some of the objections and Mm -hmm. and encounter them. Oh, and one they proposed made sense to me. They said, well... Uh, people who are going to be offering to sell their kidneys are people who very often are people who are in a desperate situation. Sure. Somebody's like, I need money now. What, you know, what can I do while I can sell a kidney? And then that you, you might sort of be in a way forced to make that decision by financial circumstances. Mm-hmm. And then later in life come to really regret that decision. It, it, it'll end up disproportionately affecting a specific uh, demographic, demographic. Well, yeah, yeah, specifically people who are in who are in bad economic circumstances. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can totally see that being true. That yeah, it, it would be sort of like a thing that uh, you you won't imagine that many wealthy, well-off people saying, "I could really use the ten thousand or fifteen thousand bucks." Yeah, right, uh, right. From a kidney. Of course. Then again, they propose sort of countermeasures to that. Well, one thing you could do is you could put a waiting period in place, so you like you'd be forced to undergo counseling. You can't just say like, "No, take my kidney today." You know, there would be like a three month period and. Th- that seems like that could come into play. They also pointed out that in their opinion, I don't know to what extent this is true, but they claim that it also would be mainly to the benefit of people who are more economically disadvantaged. Because if you're rich, you can typically more easily find a way to get an organ if you need right. one. You can, uh, you sure. can travel to another country. Right. or You can you, pay for workarounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in general, I think this is a really – Interesting and difficult question. I I don't know what the right answer to that is. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it, it sounds like kind of like a like an ethical problem of of putting a price tag upon human bodies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there there's certainly, and obviously, this would also lead people to say, now you're going to make that urban legend come to life, the one about you know 
call the doctor. You wake up in a, a bathtub full of ice. <laughs> There's oh. a yeah, one, one would hope there would be measures put in place to avoid you being able to sell someone else's organ. Yeah, it's like, like when I went to <laughs> donate blood and then was disappointed to find out it had to be mine. Uh, I don't know where I stand on this either. It's one of those things that's really difficult to kind of put my finger on. On the one hand, I definitely don't want there to be thousands of people who are are waiting and hoping and dying because they don't have the access to organs that they need. On the other hand, I don't like the I don't necessarily love the idea of people electing to get uh, a surgery that they otherwise never would just because they need cash. Because they need right. the cash. I mean they're the uh, uh, now on the on the the brightest side of things that we can point out is that if everything works well, this will hopefully be a transitional period where we will end with the ability to create the organs that are based off the patient themselves and the need for donors will be uh, eliminated entirely. But that's a future we may not ever arrive at. We yeah. can hope, but we don't necessarily know that's going to happen. Yeah, this is one of those situations. I feel like it comes up fairly often on this show where there's a there's a solution in sight that would be the the correct, the right solution, but we're not quite there yet. And yeah, there it's is kind of, something it's kind of way at the edge of our vision. Yeah, and there's it, on the way there. There's a there's a really unpleasant kind of transitional period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's entirely accurate, I would say. So uh, I'm curious what our listeners think about this. What are your opinions? Yeah. Uh, you know, Camilo wrote in. I wonder what what opinions Camilo has about this, because this is this is tricky stuff. And, uh, you know, we want to be we want to see the greatest benefit for the most number of people without it becoming like this weird question of ethics that no one's comfortable with. Uh, but, you know, this is real life. Yeah. And in real life, there are, there are often a lack of easy answers. Uh, another thing that I think would be worth considering, and I'm not even sure what their position would be, but what doctors think about this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, because I bet that they have they might have arguments for or against this that we haven't even thought of just sure. from like yeah, yeah. a procedural or medical oh, yeah. point of view. Oh, sure. Or even just of their personal experience of, of working with patients and with families and, yeah. you know, the, the kind of stuff that we can read about and, and sympathize with, but not truly empathize with. Oh, yeah. I mean, there we haven't even touched any of the psychological uh, effects that that patients can experience when undergoing transplant surgery. And I mean, mm -hmm. that's an entirely different field that is 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 complex fascinating and, deep. and and a little bit terrifying yeah and yeah. certainly i am not qualified to address it it's but it is something that i'm fascinated by uh so, well at any rate i am very curious to hear from other listeners like camillo camillo thank you so much for writing in yes yes always it, it, this was a, a really interesting topic to look at and uh, we want to continue that. We want to have people write in and ask us questions. We really enjoy addressing these listener requests. And uh, if you have a topic that you would like us to talk about in the future, let us know. Send us an email. The address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or drop us a line on Twitter, Google+, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google+, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking and Facebook. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf at Adam. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests... 
Then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.